But before I begin teaching, I want to take you through three one-minute segments that you'll see by way of video as to a cross-cultural experience, from a cross-cultural worship experience. So I'm going to ask the media director to go ahead and press play. Let's take a look at the screen. We'll need audio. We need audio for that. So we'll, we'll give them a moment to set. We'll start it over and then we'll make sure there's audio involved. Because that does play a significant role <laughs> in the experience. <laughs> but I want you, while they're, they're doing that, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7. And we're going to, uh, I'm going to teach from that passage. And so chapter 7, you're going to be looking at verse 9 and 10 in a moment. And so, give me a thumbs up when you're ready upstairs, and uh, we'll get going with that. So I know we all have images in our minds as to what exactly is uh, cross-cultural worship. What is it? And we have these myths and suspicions and ideas. But I want us to understand it theologically and then experientially, because that's where CMI wants to go. And in order to go there, it's good to have a working theology so you have anchor points that are grounded in Scripture and not just experiential well, experiential references. When you think about cross-cultural worship, before you go cross-cultural, you have to go to worship. What exactly is worship? And so worship is the Greek word proskuneho. It means to prostrate oneself in homage. It means to bow, to fawn, to crouch. To lick the hand of your master as a dog would. And it's a word that really speaks of this affection that, you know, that we can have towards the one that we're worshiping, God himself. The word worship also stems from the old English word, worship. And so in it we're saying that there's this intrinsic honor and intrinsic value that we're ascribing to God when we offer Him worship, both verbally and gesturally. So cross-cultural worship simply means when every culture that's present has equal access to be able to enjoy and encounter God. So when you think of cross-cultural worship, it's about you saying, I want to make sure that everybody in the room and everybody in this worship experience, no matter what their culture, ethnicity, and their race is, I want them to have equal access to encounter and to enjoy God. Got it? Got the definition? Good. Okay. Cross-cultural worship is that every culture represented in the room should have equal access to encounter and enjoy God in the worship experience. So it should not be fragmented, segmented, stymied, skewed to just one culture. Everyone else has to say, okay, I'm going to have to tolerate that or put up with that or just endure. No, everyone should have equal access. It's almost as if you're inviting a family over to your home for dinner. If you really want to have that family have a good experience, you'll ask them this question before they come. Are there any food allergies? What are your favorite foods? Do you like seafood? Are you vegetarian? Do you like chicken? Do you like 
Do you like pasta? Uh, what, what, what do you like? Do you like beef? And are your children, and they've got our children come, and the children, if there's one is 15, the other is 10, the other is 3 years old, you're going to prepare meals that children of that age span will also feel as if you took, you took our age and our desires into consideration in your food preparation. And so when they get to the house, the family's going to feel as if you have prepared for them by way of asking them questions and preparing your meals so that they can be able to enjoy it as well. So I want you to see, that's what cross-culture worship is. You prepare a worship experience knowing that everyone has a different way that they access, encounter, and enjoy God. Okay, are you ready upstairs? <laughs> it's not ready. And so I'll continue teaching. And so, Revelation 7 verse 9 says, after this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the land. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Here is my question. How can we enjoy cross-cultural worship? Answer. We must understand the pattern in heaven. The Bible says that before the throne was every nation, tribe, people, and language represented standing before the Lamb. A pattern is anything that's designed to serve as a model or a guide. Follow this pattern. Follow this guide. Follow the symbols. And what we see in this passage are these patterns, and we see symbols. White robes. It's a symbol of victory and righteousness. That's the symbol. Palm branches. A symbol of festive joy. So when we think about cross-cultural worship, always keep the main thing the main thing. The purpose of cross-cultural worship is to worship God. And so the main thing is we have to focus on Almighty God, the symbol of acceptance and honor of God's servants. So when I think about God, God is accepted. For God so loved the world, Jesus said. So He loves the world, everybody, everywhere. And since His love is so vast and comprehensive, when we think about worship, it's about saying, this majestic, loving God so loves me, I want to convey my love back to God. So worship has to be the main thing, worshiping God, that is. And they stood in front of the Lamb. In worship, our focus is to be on Christ, not on our culture. See, worship, it's not about you, it's about Jesus. But when we understand it's about Jesus and this Lamb, we're keeping our worship vertical and not horizontal. And when we keep our worship vertical and not horizontal, we then recognize that it's not about you, it's not about me, it's about the Lord who died for you and me. And so in that mindset, we celebrate our forgiveness and we celebrate our salvation experience. 
And so we see an answer to the question, how can we enjoy cross-cultural worship? And so we must understand the pattern in heaven. I answer the question again another way. How can we enjoy cross-cultural worship? Answer, we must practice the pattern on earth. Cross-cultural worship involves your head. Learning about the multicultural ministry requires accommodation versus tolerance. Remember I talked a little bit about that the other day. Accommodation is when you make room in your heart for the differences of our styles and the differences of our preference without making me feel tolerated or put up or, man, i got to just go through this. I don't want to feel endured because if I feel endured, I won't feel comfortable. And when I don't feel comfortable, I won't feel like I belong. And when I don't feel like I belong, I won't come. So it all starts from that point of you then being able to say, in order to answer the question, we must, how do we enjoy cross-cultural worship? We must practice the pattern on the earth. And so our head, my head says, when I say head, I mean my intellect, my rational, the rational part of who I am, the cognitive part of who I am. In worship, I want people to have a God encounter. This requires vulnerability. This requires shepherding the people. So if I'm going to shepherd people in worship, shepherds always lead, they never drive. You'll never see a shepherd going behind the flock, driving. They'll always go in front of the flock, leading. Big distinction. How does that translate in the worship experience? If I go, come on, worship, driving. Come on, let's get with it, driving. Come on, say amen, driving. Never do that. People are going to respond and emote and express when the shepherd is leading them and they're enjoying the presence of God, they will in their own way articulate their enjoyment to God who is the centerpiece of our, uh, of our worship time. So we have to train the worship leaders how to guide, how to lead. And so we take our worship leaders through a battery of training processes where they understand your job as a worship leader is never to bring attention to yourself. You are there to serve God and to serve the people. So in our worship time and worship training time, I should say, for our worship teams, our worship leaders, my wife teaches them what does it mean to serve. And in, in many instances, she has them volunteer at places like Habitat for Humanity. For humanity. You're going to help build people's houses. That's serving. Because sometimes we have a skewed perspective of serving when we relegate it and limit it to just the church. The idea of serving goes beyond just the four walls of the church. It has to extend to becoming a lifestyle. So if, I, if my job as a preacher is to serve you, assuming you're my congregation, it's not about preaching messages that I like. It's about preaching messages that you need and that we need to become the people of God in an exemplary way. So I have to, in order for me to serve you, I have to find out where, you, where that itch is and scratch it. And I have to find out, how do I communicate to you that you can understand? 
And not just understand. When I communicate to you, I have to have you being motivated from within. Intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic. Extrinsic motivation is when I push you from outside. Sir, you, you need to start loving your wife. It's just the right thing to do. Come on, you're a man of God. Why can't you just treat your wife in an honoring way? Extrinsic. Sir, if you became more tender towards your wife, she would give you all the loving. You would have all the sex you want in the world. Don't you want that? Intrinsic motivation. Whole other style. Content was same. Presentation was different to get a different result. If you use intrinsic motivation, the drive is from within. So no one's pushing, no one's prodding, no one's poking. You have this internal desire to do something. I just guided you. That's what worship leaders do. They just guide us. And then they get out of the way. And we're just eavesdropping in on their worship time with God. And all of a sudden, we're just caught up. Are you ready? Let me pause there and let's press play. We just need a little bit of audio. It didn't work. <laughs> okay, so let me continue. In worship, then, people want to encounter God. And I want to make sure the audio, are you, is your channel open down here? Okay, good. Good. All right, well, thank you. When we practice this pattern on earth, I mentioned it starts with the head. I have to understand that there are people that respond differently to God. It's different. When my wife is sensing the presence of God, she starts crying. I remember going to a conference in California and brought my pastoral team and we're there just to enjoy. And as soon as we walked into that conference, Man, the presence of God was so rich. And Marlinda starts crying. And as I'm walking with her to, we were sitting like in the second row. As we're walking there, and tears are streaming down her face. All the ladies were looking in the conference, so I should say in that section. And they're looking at her crying. And you can just sense this sisterhood just rise up in them. And they start looking at me mean. Like, they, they just, they, they just, they, they assume I did something to her. And so they're just looking at me. It's like they wanted to say, get him, get him, let's get him. Let's just jump on him. He's just like the cartoons as we pummel him. And I'm thinking that I, I just want to be able to, I mean, just be able to say, this is how she emotes when she senses the presence of God. And so I wanted to pinch her and say, why can't you just be normal and just lift your hands and leave it at that? Leave it at that. But everyone responds differently, and I, and I say that for a purpose. Some cultures are more reserved. When I preach in Malaysia, very reserved. Very stoic. When I preach in Mexico, very, you know, they're just all dynamic. Everybody, I mean, it's like everybody's fifth gear. You, got, you just start worshiping. You put, like you stole the car. I mean, you just, you're gunning it. And everybody's just up there. And if I preach, I, I can't preach. You know, just nice conversation. I got to pull out my, 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 my preaching card and just go for it. That's how they, they do. Everybody's different. And so in a cross-cultural experience, some are going for it. And some are standing there like this. 
And they're having an encounter with God. They can leave me alone and have a moment. What? You can't really tell. But that's why you don't drive, you leave. In worship, you want to encounter God. So I need to understand my head. This is a very critical one, particularly for you preachers. When you think about salvation, oftentimes different cultures limit the definition of salvation. And as a consequence, their theological perspective limits the ability to attract people that are culturally, ethnically, and racially diverse. The same theologian who spoke knowledge in his book, Out of Every Tribe and Nation, he asked this question. What do we mean by salvation? The meaning of salvation becomes more real to the individual within a multi-ethnic setting when the word is tied to the terms salvation, struggle, and survival. Salvation then means both the individual's daily survival and our survival as a people or a culture. The Japanese-American theologian Lloyd Wake expressed the connection of salvation within his context this way. Quote, For Asian Americans, salvation goes beyond a theological doctrine or metaphysical concept. It relates to rights and key issues of survival, identity, self-worth, personal and community dignity, self-determination, justice, and physical existence in a physical space. It is the well-being not only of the soul and spirit, but of the body. Puerto Rican scholar Alberto Lopez said that, quote, our way of walking in faith, of walking in the spirit, will be through a political, cultural, ideological, and personal life that rejects any instinct of oppression and tries to build a humane society for Latinos. So what I'm suggesting is that if you limit your expressions of salvation only about you being forgiven by God, it will not be multi-ethnic in its definition and its, in, and its flavor, so it will not appeal to a multi-ethnic audience because they're dealing with survival issues and identity issues and going to the work environment tomorrow and maybe being overlooked or being taken advantage of or being abused. And so your definition of salvation is that the salvific work of grace must include not only your soul, but also your identity. I remember I was in Australia, and after the teaching time, I went to the green room. And in Australia, you have people there that are white, Africans, and many Pacific Islanders. And one of the tribes is the Tongans. They look almost like the rock that the you know, actor wrestler, big, you know, that bronze-colored skin. In the green room was a Tongan professor. And so we started talking about reconciliation. I said, what are some things that you do? He said, what? I actually travel all around the world speaking to indigenous people on the topic of reconciliation. I was intrigued. He drew close, started talking. He said, tell me what you talk about. He said, I deal with the topic of reconciliation on three levels. First, helping them get reconciled to God, vertical. Second, helping to get them reconciled to others, horizontal. But then he says there's a third level, helping them get reconciled to themselves. He said, because oftentimes indigenous people have been so 
abuse that they hate themselves. And so I help them to be reconciled with themselves. So when you think about that, the Native Americans or the Aboriginals, they need to be reconciled themselves. Be at peace with the fact that God made me and I'm fearfully and wonderfully made and I have value and worth despite my history that shows I have no value or I have no worth based on the abuse and the victimization and the ethnic cleansing that occurred historically. The point is that salvation, your definition of salvation, must then take on a multi-ethnic view to it. Still grounded theologically, still inherently biblical and evangelical, but it must be comprehensive. So the black guy that's there, the Spanish guy that's there, the Asian guy that's there, the white guy that's there, those guys, when they hear you teach on God's saving grace, they say that salvation is also for me. Cross-cultural worship involves your heart. You must be passionate about becoming a cross-cultural ambassador. You must love the cultural and linguistic expressions found in other cultures. That must appeal to you. One is not better than the other, they're just different. And you have to explore new ways to encounter God when you do a cross-cultural worship. That means through moments of reflection, through moments of declaration, through moments of instruction, through moments of repentance. So there are moments that you create. For example, let's say we're having this cross-cultural worship experience and the songs that have been sang that particular morning, they're all intense, they're fast. And if I come up, I realize that there are people here that the fast, the intense, they're left out. So when I come up, I purposely, I speak slower. I purposely slow things down. And I purposely then start to say, let's pause. Listen to God. What am I doing? I'm giving access to those who encounter God in the serene, in the quiet. And the flip side is equally true. So if it's all been quiet, all been somber, then I come up, I'm going to be like a rabble-rouser. God loves us. Let's give the Lord a great big shout. And so people shout. And then I may give instruction. When you go to the football game and your team scores a touchdown, you shout, our God has scored a touchdown. A spike the ball in front of the devil when you got saved. Anybody in here want to give God a great big touchdown shout? Yeah! Because they now understand. Sometimes I give instruction. There's seven Hebrew words for the word praise. One of them is called Shabbat. It's a loud, elongated expression of praise. And God gives us the ability to do that. Imagine if you're going through crisis and you went to see your therapist and they had you lay down on the couch and the therapist wanted you to find freedom because you've been victimized and it so pains you. And the therapist says there's a theory called scream, scream therapy. And if you would scream at the top of your voice, it frees you from all those stressors and the pain. And you scream out. And they said, that would be 150 bucks. I said, we have a heavenly therapist, God. And he won't charge you a dime. But Shabbat gives you the same kind of relief. Get ready. When I count to three, I want you to Shabbat the Lord. A loud, elongated expression of praise. One, Jesus died for your sins. Two, he's madly in love with you. Three, 
box the Lord. I gave instruction. Gave the person. So I met all those needs all in that one moment. I want to just break there and I want to bring my wife up. And we want to field questions and you know, and see what we can do, not just limited to the topic of cross cultural worship, but to whatever we've been talking about over these past couple of days. And, and if we can answer the question, we can. All the hard questions direct to her. Give me easy questions, please. And I love that. <laughs> and so, Good morning, know. family. Yeah. Good morning. Actually, before we ask questions, I want to, we, we can see these videos, all right? I think it's really important. The first video is actually from our church. But uh, Sandra, our assistant, informed me that some, for some reason the audio is not coming through. On that video, there are two others that the audio is coming through. So my idea is this. Let's watch our video, even though there's no audio. I think you'll be able to see um, from that video how God has given us grace to build a multicultural team. The other two videos are not as diverse from an ethnic, cultural, racial standpoint, but the styles of music and all three, um, I think that will really give us a palette to work from. And then we can ask questions. And I'd love to explain to you a little bit more about how we got to where we are because it has been a journey. We didn't start um, with what you're going to see in this video, and we can go from there. So go ahead and play those videos for us. Thank you. Each one is about a minute long. So this is Lucia Parker. She was actually a guest worship leader this weekend. This was a Sunday morning. But everyone else that you see behind her, musicians, those are all our folks. So you've got Latinos, you've got Black, you've got White, um, people from South America. Um, we do have Asians on some of our other teams as well. But this is our, our house. Could you bring the house lights down a little bit? Is that possible? So we're singing one of the contemporary worship songs here. Our God is a lion, the lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles. Yeah. Every knee will bow before. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles. So we have a violinist and she's a pretty dynamic. We have six services over the course of the weekend, one on Saturday night uh, at one location, and that next morning, uh, three at that location, which is our Montclair building, and then we have two on Sunday morning at our uh, second site, which is in Rockaway, New Jersey. We have about uh, 20 worship uh, teams, I should say people on teams, about 10 worship leaders. And um, most of those folks you see behind Lucia are worship leaders. So that was from Christchurch. This is Bethel. I think most of you are familiar with Bethel. It's a church in uh, California, and uh, they do a lot of wonderful songs that are Christ-centered and uh, maybe on the CCM, Contemporary Christian Music vein. Do you have audio for this one? I guess But you'll see here. Uh, mm-hmm. 
Accommodating for folks, and so PCM means contemporary Christian music. So it's not your gospel sound. The group that has been leading us in worship the last two nights, wonderful, but that's very different than what we have. It'd be more of a PCM because our mission and our vision. We want to make sure we are supporting that with the kind of music that we sing. And PCM is, is kind of broad, and more people are able to engage. With that, I should say. And this is uh, here's, the final, here's the final video, so I just want to yeah. let it play out and then we'll interact. I'm coming back to your place. There's a hope that got to where we are, uh, starting back in 1986 when I first our team, our worship team consisted of myself, I was pianist and worship leader, and then little by little, uh, God began to add other singers and musicians, but we were all black at that time. And so because of the burden that we sensed of, of the Lord for multicultural worship, we began to pray. We prayed folks in. We said, God, send um, people that will be able to, so that we can model the kingdom of heaven in our worship. And so he began to add them to our church. And as the Lord added more and more folks to our church, based on the mission and the vision, our worship team began to become more and more diverse as well. And so little by little over the years, that's how we've grown in this visible display. When it comes to the music, how many of you remember back in the 80s that you had uh, worship songs that had a specific flavor or genre, such as Latino and Jewish and rock? And so it was much easier back then to model diversity from the genre standpoint. These days, you don't have as much as that. So we do the diverse aspect of the music when it comes to making sure we're including hymns. We do include gospel. We do include rock. We do include classical. We try to merge all of those types of 
genres of music because those are flavors that folks in the congregation can connect with, and that helps them to enter in in a way um, that is that is really good for them. And so what it doesn't just start with the music; it starts theologically, grounding people with that, as I was doing today. So I want us to entertain some questions. And so please, if you have a question, raise your hand. Herb's going to bring a mic to you and answer your questions. Question: uh, Do you have uh, materials, uh, training materials for the worship teams that you could we could purchase? We don't have anything that uh, we for sale, but I can definitely send you some. I have uh, Pastor Rhonda's contact information. I'll make sure that I get get that to you. Yes. But one of the ways that the best one of the best ways to train worship teams to become more cross-cultures to take them somewhere where the cross-cultural experience is occurring. Because if you, they don't really capture visually, they're not going to be able to get it experientially because they have no reference point for it. Let me say real quick, what I, what I love to do with new worship team members and new worship leaders is to have small group trainings with them, one-on-one. I tell them our story. Remember yesterday I talked about how you need to have a story, um, a defining moment, so to speak. So I helped them to experience the defining moment that I had when I saw all kinds of people worshiping together back at King and King's Church in Hackensack, and then walked them through the theology as well as the experience and the balance of what it means to accommodate different kinds of people. So you, it helps that someone from the leadership team can impart that that experience and that grace to them over time. Yeah. There's also a reading program that you put them on, so because most people they read the wrong books, <laughs> including pastors. So when you put them on reading the right kind of books, books that strengthen, challenge, define, anchor, explain, then they can get it. Okay. okay. That was kind of the question I read in your book that um, Marlena. Different groups books to read. What kind of books do you use? So there's three categories of books that I like to use. First, there's spiritual formation books. So um, things like uh, Broken in the this book called Broken in the Right Place, and it speaks of what it means to have a life that's broken before the Lord, where you're humble and you're a servant-hearted person. Um, the Heart of the Artist by Rory Nolan is excellent. Another spiritual formation, but it's specifically written for artists. So spiritual formation. The second one is uh, musicianship within the local church. I have some by Bob uh, Sorge and others. And the third one has to do with more of a theological, but where I won't use the word dumbed down, but it's, it's pedestrian where anybody can understand what what worship, uh, what the Bible teaches about. For example, that worship is a verb. It's one type of a book. And Worship Old and New by Robert Weber. Both those titles I just gave you, Robert Weber. So those are excellent books to help people understand theologically what worship is and also historically where the church, Christian churches come from. And when I start training, they're like, well, why do we have to do this? We we just want to play. We just want to sing. This is too much for us. But I have to just keep encouraging them. Trust me. That as you learn how to worship God from the readings and the trainings, you're going to be much more effective than you ever imagined. And I have them talk to people who've gone through our training who are actually experiencing that bump, so to speak, in their grace and their skill and their wisdom and their sensitivity.
and, and when it comes to even giving exhortations, when worship leaders may give, let's say, a 30-second or a minute-long exhortation between their songs, there's certain disciplines that they need to have in place so that the exhortation is rich. Not that they're a preacher, but I don't want them just to just go up there and say, thank you, Jesus. I say, come on, what, what, are you, what are you trying to communicate? And so it may be about faith. And so for them to understand the meaning of what faith is, there are times we have to read books by, you know, this one, Kenneth Weiss, W-E-U-E-S-T. And so he deals, there's a compilation of four books that he has, and uh, there's a, one of the books that deal with the meaning, the Greek meaning of specific words, and he gives maybe a one or two page rich meaning on whether words of, let's say the word is servant or the word is faith, you know, and so you really then get understanding of it. So when you're exhorting someone between your song and you understand the meaning of the word, then you can unpack it in a rich way. You're not a preacher, but you're doing it in a, in a worshipful manner to help enhance the worship experience. So there's a richness to the exhortation, and you're not just getting up there using a lot of Christianese. Do you have any recommendations of healthy solutions uh, really to expand people's thinking that would be resistant to some of the different types of music and the different preaching styles where people are just really closed off and they're comfortable only with their particular slant or perspective? Uh, there's no book out there that, is that I've come across that is a cross-cultural preaching. I mean, lots of good books on preaching, the technical aspects of preaching, books like Ed Robinson. There's a wonderful you know, book, Biblical Preaching. I mean, there are lots of them. You know, John R. W. Scott, Between Two Worlds. But I think that the best convincing evidence for that is to give you a taste of it. So when you model to them what you are saying, you don't have to, you don't have to provide an argument to convince. The fruit of your preaching convinces them. So you say, you know, that's different. I mean, like, for example, I, there are times I use what I call a dramatic style of preaching. I have my entire band, and I have a couple of singers, and let's say I'm preaching on David and Bathsheba. And I've, what I did was, I worked for my sermon, I would meet with that group once, and they'll have cues of when they'll interject a certain piece into the sermon. And so it helps to bring the story alive. For example, that I may say, David, when he was seducing Bathsheba, he was a musician. He knew exactly how to make her feel open and sensitive to his approaches. And the music guys start playing a contemporary song. It's very, you know, one of those love songs that may be popular. And then, I don't know what he's saying to Bathsheba. He may have. And then I'll say something. Then a singer would just introduce a little piece of a song that's very popular, a love song. And I said, and then I, then they'd stop and I continue. And so then I would say, if I was David's pastor, I would say, David, in the hallway, let's talk. And I walk, and I walk forward, I can go in the hallway. Then I'll bring out some of the theological stuff. David, what's going on right now is false intimacy. You're thinking that there's a closeness that's happening. It's not really that. It's love. And I start laying out framework. And I said, but since David had no pastor with him, back in the chamber. And I continue. So you give people a taste. So if the fruit of the result is that people, because when people love stories and their hearts open, they're not defensive. 
And so I'm dealing with, I'm dealing with a very tough subject of sex and, and fornication and adultery. That's what I'm dealing with when I'm dropping people's guards and I'm making them vulnerable and receptive. And then, at the end, I'm challenging people to make a decision for Christ. People, and so when people are getting saved in that kind of format, then all of a sudden people say, you know something? I never knew that I would enjoy that style of preaching. I didn't announce it, but he used that style. I just did it. So the same way, did it. Do it. Practice styles in front of people. And so as you practice, not in the sense of practicing like the, the show, I'm saying, do what's in your heart. And when the fruit of it's there, people are saying, I didn't even know what was going on. It's like when you when you have kids and you say, okay, eat your spinach. I don't like spinach. And you put a little bit of something fresh on and some cheese and you do it in a little souffle and all of a sudden they eat spinach. They don't even know they eat spinach. That's what you have to do. Someone else with a question? Yeah, over here. Hello. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to speak for everyone, but I. Um, I, I don't think I, this would be obtuse to say that one of the struggles we have as ministry leaders is not just casting vision, but catalyzing vision in others. So they're not just sitting there. Right. Right. How have you? How have the two of you done that? Catalyzed new vision, unique vision. In the people sitting in your pews. Great question. So for me, what I I'm very much a team player and a team leader, and so the people around me that uh, lead with me, I regularly sit with them and admit my limitations and say, okay, here's the vision. I'm only I'm very limited in how we can get there. What can you do to help us get? To where we need to be. What what uh, personal vision do you have? What gifts do you have? I'm able to see those in some of the folks around me. If I can draw it out of them, and then they feel useful and they feel engaged and they feel like they're a part of it. And other times, I just leave it out there on the table and say, "Folks, we need help doing this. How can you provide that?" So identifying the gifts and then leaving the door open and making sure that you are very comfortable with identifying and owning your limitations and people, our people have tend to, tended to jump in and just provide what's missing. On a congregational level, to get buy-in, vision has to be invitational. Habakkuk says, write the vision and make it plain so that there's a reader will run with it. So there's a part of it then, the running part is the passionate part. So there's times I may teach, I'll use, I'll throw out an example. Come join the dream. There's a dream going on here. And I want to invite you to be part of this tree. So I paint word pictures that are very emotional, that you catch it. And so invariably, if I'm teaching on something, like we just went through a whole phase of ministry that's focusing on student ministry, really contextualizing our ministry to become far more friendly to students, that is, kids, teens, young adults, college students, that whole demographic what moved the people to have a buy-in was when I 
reference when I was in my devotional time reading Mark chapter 10, verse 14, from the message version, where Jesus was talking about don't push these children away. And then the message version says, don't push these children away. Jesus correcting his disciples now when they were coming to him saying, these parents want, to, want you to bless their kids. And they're driving their parents away, throwing them away. And Jesus said, don't push these children away. Don't ever get between them and me. The children are, very, are the very center of life in the kingdom. And when I was preaching it, I started weeping. Because I said, I'm weeping because I'm under deep conviction. Because I have been guilty of pushing the children away. You make the house so. I said, because my ministry is primarily exclusive towards adults. We have not made the space for the children meet so friendly to kids. And so I was getting between the kids and Jesus. And when Jesus was rebuking his disciples, I'm not teaching you on the part of standing in the place of Jesus rebuking you. I'm standing in the place of the disciples being rebuked. And so it so messed me up that it messed the people up. So they caught it. So then that whole year we changed all of our ministry to make it more engaging to students in every aspect, raise a ton of money to retrofit space to make sure we were able to do that. But vision, buying a vision is emotional through word picture that you paint. See, you feel something. You saw the burning bush. The people didn't. Take them to the burning bush through your words, through your pictures, through your stories. Let them feel what you feel. Then they'll be by it. If you don't feel it, they can't feel it. I would say also for the leaders around you, we have uh, 12 associate pastors who oversee different departments and, and oversee various people. And so we know our limitations. And so when we sit around the table with them and find out what are they seeing in the congregation, in the organization, and what would they suggest the solutions be to those problems, and then we ask them to spearhead those solutions. So that's the catalyzation part as well. Because we may not see certain things, they see it, we may not be able to provide the answers that they can. So it's focusing them to do that. And also doing surveys, assessing our ministry, asking the congregation specific questions that, so we can unearth concerns, dis areas of disconnect, so we can better communicate so that there is a, a good connection to catalyze vision so it really does have traction. Someone else with a question? Yes. Um, I was just going to ask about suggestion box or what did you do as you were small and started growing and then when you were mostly African American and then you tried to uh, be accommodating. Um, I've was vocal training director my dad's choir since I was 13 until I got married and moved away. And um, there, with some churches I've attended, the worship music doesn't touch me. Too many words. Um, it's just I'm not used to it. And I had to really try to adjust. Um, I love hymns. I need you you know, I meet that in, in all these words and these songs, sometimes it's just too wordy and it's not, I'm not feeling it. And so, how, how did you adjust with the music adjustments from African American, the Gospels, and then the hymns, and then we go into like um, 
nobody greater. Yeah, that's the Sean Mitchell. And he may not be contemporary. Like, you know, like Dove Awards or whatever, sure. but I well, think more people will know that more. And then you work your way into sure. you do like one genre one Sunday and then switch to another just so everybody that are not used to what, of course, we may be used to. So you, you just touched on exactly the practice that we put into place, which is doing within the course of at least a month different kinds of music, some that are not so wordy, some that are contemporary, some that are hymns. Now, does everybody get on board with that right away? Absolutely not. This has been hard. Let me just say that. Music is a soul uh, root within us, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just it's something that is very deep. The genres that we love, those are the genres that we love, whether it's rock or gospel or whatever it might be. And so, getting people to be accommodating and to move maybe to a place where they don't normally, it takes time. It takes patience. We have to say, hey, folks, we know all of you may not love this song, but would you join with us as we sing this? And we have the words up on the screen. And one of the things he pointed out was really key. A lot of uh, African-American folks like, wow, there are way too many words in these contemporary worship songs. They like choruses, where it's a short phrase and you sing it over and over and over again, just like what we see in the book of Revelation, by the way. But uh, the key is try to be accommodating, but the coaching is important. So our worship leaders, we have to have them not, as David said, drive, and they, you can get mad. Well, why isn't that person back there worshiping? What's wrong with that? What's wrong with you? We've been in services where that has been the communication of the worship leader. But it's, you know what? I know this is not your cup of tea, but you know what? The words in this song are so powerful. Would you join with us as we just sing it to the Lord and lift Him high? So it's, it's a theological appreciation that you, you start. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an appetite that you help to develop in people. So, but every single weekend, the worship experience is going to be very far-reaching. So it's not where first Sunday this and second Sunday. None of that. Because that people don't come to church every Sunday anyway. The average Christian, I think it's 1.2 Sunday a month in the last batch I read. Communicated, so it's, and those are the strong ones. <laughs> so, so you have to really then say the week I meet with them, that's the week they have to encounter God, and so the worship experience will lend itself to that. Before but, we talk but, about, but, let me finish. I think that what I want to say is that create an appetite. When you create an appetite for people, you do so by teaching them. If God loves everybody, then what are we saying to them? when we don't make space for them to encounter God here. So I'm, I'm challenging them theologically. And from there, then some of the practical things, like my wife is bringing out, can then be communicated. So it's not one or, it's both simultaneously. Okay? Right. From a musical standpoint, this is hard as well. So the musicians we have, they are really good musicians because to be able to play gospel and rock and jazz and classical, most musicians can't do that. So, again, there's this prayer and fasting piece with me on my face, our team on our face, God, we're missing a piece here. Would you bless us? So there's, a, there's that supernatural part of this that you will have to lean into because if this, you don't see this. 
and it's very difficult to accommodate from a musical standpoint as well. So I just wanted to point that out. And even switching from genre to genre in between songs and keeping the flow of the worship. And sounding authentic each time. That's something that, you know, it's phony. And it's not just the musicians that we school for, it's the sound engineer as well. Because the sound engineer has to be very key to make sure the volume of the music is not blaring, where they're only reaching one demographic and they don't realize that the church has the spectrum of ages and generations represented, and each one should have access to, to uh, access to encounter God. So there, that, that person, that sound engineer, has to be involved in the training and the teaching and understanding philosophically what we're trying to accomplish, because if not, they can just mess everything up, because there are, some of them like to crank it all the way up. And if it's cranked up so loud, you can't even enter in because the music is coming at you. Okay? Anyone else? Okay. Suggest the idea of a suggestion box, I normally like to have a survey, whether it's annualized or every six months, because suggestion box is always coming. And then, you know, I just like to be more of a planner. So this way, you know. That's certainly, you can... why my wife says, this, this thing is built on prayer. Remember, you're building a spiritual house. This is not a natural house. I'm not just simply talking about cross-cultural churches or any church. You're building a spiritual house. And you have to then make this thing bathe in prayer. Haven't you appreciated the irons and uh, what they've offered to us again this morning uh, in, this, in this segment? And uh, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'd like to call uh, Dr. Gary Linton uh, to the front. Dr. Linton has been a part of and a friend of CMI Global for a number of years. And he is the... Uh, Chairman, President, CEO, Chief Cook, and Bottle Washer for Ministry Makers University out of Bloomington, Indiana. And Dr. Linton's come this morning uh, for a special presentation. Thank you, Herb. I appreciate everything that's been said this week. It's been really rich, and I agree with you. Songs are too dang wordy. <laughs> I can't remember all that. <laughs> anyway, um, I'm going to take this in a little different direction. Um, I'm going to share with you a couple of verses real briefly. Psalm 12:1. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. 
many know we, it was mostly God was in a search for faithfulness. How many ever had someone come up and pat you on the back and said, I'm behind you, Pastor, and the next week they're gone? Many a man proclaims his own loyalty, but who can find a faithful man? Many proclaim it, but who can find a faithful man? I think we have embodied in our midst a perfect example of faithfulness. I'm going to talk about Brother Christopher in a few minutes, if you don't mind. I remember, in fact, I emailed Brother Kushner and said, wasn't it October 4th, 1982, when you, was, you were officially installed as Secretary of CMI? And he responded back, it was somewhere around there. <laughs> that was the same night I was ordained. Brother Kushner has been faithful. From the early days as a, as a Methodist pastor to secretary of CMI to now the general overseer of CMI Global. And I appreciate his faithfulness. The Lord began to deal with me a few years ago. I, I wish I could say I've modeled the faithfulness that Brother Kushner has. And the Lord, but the Lord had been dealing with me about something, and it stirred in me for two or three years, and I finally called Dennis this summer and shared with him and, and that I appreciated his faithfulness, that he's probably been one of the more faithful men to the ministry that I've ever known. And he didn't take it upon himself. No man takes this honor to himself. We don't take it unto ourselves but he that is called of God. He's been faithful to the call of God. And that's all God's asking of. We, we don't always have it all together. He's asking us to be faithful to the call. When we're doing it, when we're doing well and we're not doing so well, be faithful to the call. And I know, I don't know about many of you, but I'm assuming that there's been many times you've been going through times of difficulty and Dennis has been there for you. Been the same with me. I can't count the times he's been there for me in my time of need. And the Bible says this: Render therefore to all their due, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor is due. And Dennis, I just want to say I want to thank you for your faithfulness to this body and to the call of God on your life, and to just being a faithful servant. I appreciate that. And giving honor to whom honor is due, I would like to present to you in recognition of a life of faithful servants, the degree Doctor of Divinity from Minister Maker University.